yeah. So I did generally start. So you professionally go by Laura Noble or Laura and no, is it Anne? Laura Noble. Just Laura Noble. So Laura Noble with the Gallery World, LA Noble as the gallery, LA Noble as an artist. Okay. Whatever makes you happy. Well, if I put Laura Noble, I mean, even though the website says Laura Noble, that was just a, an availability thing. But yeah, so LA Noble, people don't know if it's a man or a woman, which Fair is enough. an advantage. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you have met you, the art world? Well, that was sort of the uh, the leading question on that. So have you experienced any sexism in the art world? Funnily enough, funnily enough, Matthew, I have. I'm shocked deeply and <laughs> uh, never would have expected that. I know. It's an absolute shocker. It's an absolute shocker, I know. But you do have a British accent, so that does elevate you even still. Apparently, apparently, yes. Yeah. I used to be able to get a very good table in a restaurant in New York that helped me for a while there. So, yeah. It does. Yeah. Other than that, you know, in the UK, it's slightly different to overseas, I think. Oh, yeah. I was thinking to my ears as an American, the British accent oh, yeah. always sounds like everybody sounds like Tilda Swinton mm. to me. So, yeah. Thank God I don't, but thank you. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Now, so you do many things. So give me a little rundown of the variety of different hyphens that you are. God, deep breath. Uh, okay, what do I do? I am an artist. So I paint, sculpt, draw, etch, take photographs a little, but not mo mostly all of the other things, collage, things like that. I am a gallerist. So I uh, uh, am a gallerist who's specializes in photography um so i have artists that i represent and nurture and exhibit i'm an independent curator so as well as the artists i represent i also curate on a freelance basis i write i write things mostly on photography essays for books i wrote a book on collecting photography because i collect photography and you know general dog's body and washer upper yeah, my big first thing that I noticed about you when I was researching you is, is that you wrote a book called The Art of Collecting Photography. Now, notedly, yeah. I must say that it came out in 2006. So, oh, yeah, years ago now. Right. So, like, my question is not like, you know, tell me about the book. It's tell me about what's changed since the book came out to mm -hmm. now, because that industry yeah. has changed Completely rather dramatically changed. in that time. Well, lots has changed. And in a way, that's important. So when I was doing the research for my book, it was important for me to look at previous books about collecting. I mean, I've got a book from the 70s, which Dan Arbus's were going for three or $4,000. <laughs> Big cry there. You know, <laughs> if, I, if you knew then what we know now. So when I was writing it, I was keen that whenever possible, rather than having a sliding scale of what an artist cost, I've read books where it's like 10,000 to 50,000. Well, what does that picture cost? So whenever possible, I asked the galleries to give me a specific, the edition, how much it was at that moment, so that the book would date intentionally. 
it was also important that the book was useful, not just for people wanting to collect, but photographers, because also photographers don't always have a realistic idea how to price their work or how it works. If they don't understand that structure, how can they sell? It's really difficult. So whenever possible, I asked for examples. The curation section at the end, I had different budgets for different people. I said, right, you've got a thousand, you've got 30,000, you've got 10,000 or whatever it was. And what would you buy with those things with different experts? So I had a photographer, I had print sales in the photographer's gallery where I used to work. I also had Hal Greenberg, who's a New York dealer, he probably know, and said, what would you buy if you had this amount of money and why? So they all had very different approaches because it's a very personal thing collecting. So if you're talking about the 19th century, that's a different world in terms of those collectors. They're a different type of collector. The art world goes through phases. Prints are always going to sell because people like prints on their walls. They like them in their offices. They like them in their yachts. However, you've got the NFT. You know, it wasn't even an idea then. Everybody has a website now. You know, websites were still not the norm. You know, that's a big change <laughs> at the time. Funnily enough, near to that, Rinko Koauchi was making work like Instagram. She was doing all these square format, pastely colored, pretty pictures of random things in the day that were, you know, more and more books were coming out. She was becoming more and more popular and in an abstract sort of way, everyday way. So she was kind of preempting Instagram, which I thought was quite interesting. And that was just after the book. So yeah, I think the, and the way that people consume photography has changed because of social media, because of virtual galleries. I think the pandemic's really reminded people how difficult it is. You know, you've got the people sort of marketing themselves in different ways. It's been helpful in some ways. It's not been in others. I think, you know, a couple of years of things not being the same and of being a bit out of kilter, a lot of the networking disappeared, which, you know, has its bad points, but also has a lot of positives. <laughs> it does take a lot of pressure off of us in many it ways. Does. But, but then yeah. after a long time of not networking, it puts a lot of pressure on us to re either rekindle or build new networks. Yeah. But also, you know, shifts in history, shifts in politics, they all have their effect. You know, some of the best art is made during the hardest times. It's like the renaissance of cinema in the 70s when America was on its knees. You've got some of the best films ever made. You know, there's a resilience that comes with that. You know, you make things when things are tough. Sometimes you make better work when things are tough. It's not just about the tortured artist. To be honest, I've seen more COVID related projects than I ever want to see again. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I do portfolio reviews online mm. anonymously through Lens Culture, and I oh, yeah. am so tired of seeing COVID artworks, and it, it is exhausting. Don't get me wrong. Some of them are magnificent. There's some great stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. But there, unfortunately, there's a huge amount of horrible stuff. This is my point on it. I actually have like thought through this. Is mm. It's not that I have a problem with people making artwork about isolation and the the mm. you know separation and you know quarantines and all this kind of stuff about the pandemic and the sure. effects of the pandemic my problem is is that because they're universal like things anyway whether there's a pandemic or not yeah absolutely but yeah i th feel like they're doing it 
too early because it's not over. They they don't have the time and perspective on the situation reflection. to really give yeah. a good reflection. Yeah, reflection's a great word, like on the experience because there's still many of them are still in it. And so I I just think people are jumping on that bandwagon a little too quickly. Go for the longer edit. I work with all sorts of people, but I've had many discussions with people where I said, look, you know, you can't rush this. I'm going to do this project. I'm going to start here. I'm going to end here. And then it's going to be brilliant. I mean, Roy Meta, who just finally the show is on actually because it was delayed because of the pandemic. We've got a show opening in a couple of weeks and images he took revival in the late 80s, early 90s in Brent. And he found all these, you know, he went back to this work recently and he's still scanning necks. You know, he's made a book and this huge response to it it wouldn't have had the impact at the time that it has now. There's things, you know, because of the period, and they're all medium format, black and white, beautiful images, people on the street, people in their home, people feel very present. There's no mobile phones in people's hands to distract them. There's an immediacy to them that perhaps we don't have anymore. There's more of a connection, a human connection in a lot of the images in a way that we've sort of lost because we're all distracted by shiny things. And, you know, yeah, that work wouldn't have been appreciated then. It is a little bit of a sense of nostalgia in many ways. Always. To, to Photography has that. Yeah. I mean, that that's always the case. Definitely. Definitely. 20 years is a good, 20, 30 years is a good benchmark to look back at something if you can. I know. I, I kind of want to go back and like find all my old negatives because like I used to do concert photography in the late 90s, uh, you know, right. like Bjork, Lenny Kravitz, U2, like all these bands touring around. And I'm like, yeah, sort of revisit that because like I see all these other photographers like having books out and stuff. And I'm like, I was at that same concert. Like I was standing right next to him. I wish <laughs> I, I had a camera photos. at some of the stuff I'd gone to back then. I mean, you know, seeing Prince live, Lenny Kravitz, Let Love Rule Tour. I mean, all that was, yeah. I mean, the Love Sexy Tour was incredible, but no pictures. I was at the Hacienda every other day. No photos. I mean, you wouldn't have taken a camera. It had been stolen. You wouldn't you wouldn't dream of doing it. But or back smashed. then, you, yeah. I mean, back then you'd take one roll of film a year. I mean, that's the other thing that's changed massively. People take more pictures in an afternoon than they would in an entire year, in 10 minutes, in three seconds, if they keep their finger on the button. I mean, it's, it's the true. quantity I mean, is uh, not, terrifying. Not me. I took a lot of pictures when I was young, <laughs> but but it was expensive <laughs> to take a lot of pictures. Yeah, and time they, they counted. An image counted. Yeah, that frame counted. It did not anymore. I mean, I remember in the old days, I used to shoot large format, so four by five yeah, inches. Right. And yeah. I, I mean, when I went out, I got to snap the shutter twenty four times because that's all the film holders I had. And I was mm. done. That's it. I had to go home. Yep. And, and whereas now I'll go out and shoot three, 5,000 photos at a shoot. Come on. Why not? It's free. Let's do it. But like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yes. I mean, and the idea of contact sheet, you know, it's gone. That seeing how quickly somebody can capture something great. I mean, that sort of barometer isn't there anymore. It's true. 
Yeah. Well, I would, I want to go back to something you said. You said the U.S. was on its knees in the 70s. Well, New York was. <laughs> New York was bankrupt. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, New York was. Yeah, was not the not whole of the US, but I mean, New York was bankrupt, wasn't it, in the 70s? You know, and look what came out of that. Look what came out of that. I mean, God, Trump for one, but, you know, there's a whole adversity does breed, sadly, breeds creativity a lot of the time. It does. I mean, even in my own yeah. work, like usually when I'm depressed or sad or lonely or whatever, I generally, like, I actually had a good discussion with somebody recently that they're like, I write in a journal, but generally mm -hmm. I only write in my journal when I'm sad, depressed, lonely, whatever. And so therefore like in times later, so like theoretically, let's say my, mm -hmm. my stuff goes into a collection or whatever, they're going to think I'm the most depressed, sad, horrible person all the time, because the only time I write in my journal is when I'm sad. So like, I never write when I'm happy. So like my journal is nothing but sadness. And in the same way, oftentimes my art is sort of brought out from some yeah. sad experience, some depressing events and whatever that then sort of stimulates that creative notion. I mean, there's also that thing of sort of pushing back against you only take a picture when you're in a really cool location or looking really happy or having a great time. You know, there's sort of a lack of authenticity in that as well. You know, even back in the day, you know, your roll of film would have a birthday, a Christmas, a holiday, if you were lucky enough to have one. And that would be it. That would be your year. And if you looked at that life in that year, you think, wow, they're having a great time all year round. Well, actually, all the bits in between weren't that fun. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to friends who've had a terrible afternoon with somebody who's got awful children. And then 10 minutes after they get home, they posted an album on Facebook where they said, oh, what a wonderful time we had. And they were like, we were glad to see the back of them. Why do we lie like that? <laughs> it's this awful habit that humans have of comparing themselves to each other. It's a very strange thing. It's very pointless really in the long run it doesn't serve any helpful purpose no no it puts pressure on people it builds anxiety it's usually not true i mean all these you know fake airplanes and all this nonsense it doesn't inspire me <laughs> Put it that way, you know. No, like if I see some beautiful person in some beautiful place living some beautiful lifestyle, I get depressed that I don't yeah. have that. Not, hey, I should work harder to get to that lifestyle. It's more like, yeah. fuck, I'm not that. <laughs> I think usually those people doing that haven't worked that hard. I think that's kind of why it's problematic. There's often that element of privilege. So there is, again, it's going to get you back up, isn't it? Because you think, well, they haven't really worked for that. Mummy and daddy have given them that. Their lane was always going that way. Yeah, which uh, sadly enough still relates back to the art world in its own twisted way, which is that a oh, very lot much of so. <laughs> the famous artists and powerful gallerists and curators and stuff mm. either come from wealth or marry into wealth and then gain very their so. power and influence through their parents or spouses influence and money which is very sad i i i'm still a romantic it is in a creative when you think the whole thing is supposed to be about creativity but it's always been a market you know we wouldn't have had the renaissance without patrons i know but i'm still but i'm still a romantic in the idea that i believe that it should be on Talent. merit 
Yeah, yeah I agree. Skill, craftsmanship, agree. talent, whatever words you want to put yeah. to it. Like, yeah. but it's not. No. Like after almost 30 years in the industry, I've, I've come to the realization that it has almost nothing to do with talent. It has, yeah. you have to have some talent, but some is enough. I mean, it could be to do with being good at marketing. Sadly, you know, Damien Hurst. We Jeff wouldn't have had Damien Hurst. He was the master marketer. He knew exactly, you know, exactly what to do. Really he got in was. there at the beginning. You know, he was the Bitcoin of the art world. You know, still he just is. got in there early and went, this is how you do it. I think privilege is still a problem. I mean, there's a lot of institutions trying to address it, but there are a lot that aren't. Or that are paying lip service rather than actually doing anything. It's all very superficial. And that's problematic. I have to find different ways. I've had to find different ways to get, to do things that I do. Because I haven't had that opportunity. I don't have that background. I'm very much the antithesis of what you're supposed to be. And that's what I appreciate about you. <laughs> so I mean, I think, yeah, <laughs> not through choice, <laughs> just the way it is. Through heartache and pain and suffering, yeah. just like every other thing we were just talking about. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay, yeah. great. Pretty so much. Going back to something you brought up earlier, which is that you mm -hmm. run the gallery and the gallery is primarily specializes in photography. Now, yes. of all the different things in the world that you could potentially be selling, why would you choose photography? I didn't choose it. It chose me, to be fair. I had no intention of selling photography. If you'd asked me five years before I was doing what I was doing, I would have said nonsense. I mean, I studied painting, fine art. I always appreciated photography. My dad's a really keen amateur photographer and if he'd been born into a different class he's a bit like David Attenborough with a camera my dad so obsessed with animals I mean knows that can identify anything it's great he even now even works for a wildlife sanctuary so he's very into photography did some wedding photography in the 80s which I'd love to see now um <laughs> which would be great my grandfather was a super keen photographer. I mean, we used to have to sit through endless slideshows of his photographs as kids and just all fall asleep. He spent, and this is predating Tillman's by about 10 years, he photographed Concord every time it flew over his house. And he had pictures of Concord right over the house, a little bit further away, a dot in the sky. And he had hundreds of these, hundreds of them, all on slide film. And we thought he was mad. He had this little Russian cam SLR that he used. So really, my world wasn't photography. I was painting, I was drawing, I was clubbing, I was doing all that stuff in Manchester in the 90s. That was my world, you know, hanging out with drag queens. It was a very amazing, exciting, bonkers time to be there. It was great. But... The photography thing, I went to Australia for a few years, came back, went to uni, went to Kingston. It was what I'd been recommended by a teacher out in Australia because they still did a painting degree specifically. Whereas a lot of the universities just sort of said, oh, it's a fine art degree and you can do which and whatever. Because I'd done a two-year course out there rather than a one-year foundation, I knew what I wanted to focus on. And yeah, I barely got through that financially. That was very tough. So the two things I needed when I finished uni, I needed a library and I needed a studio. So I got a job in a bookshop. I got a studio in Limehouse. And then 
after working at said bookshop for a couple of years, terrible time there because they were American and weren't very nice, didn't recognize unions, wouldn't promote me, blah, blah, blah. I ended up getting a job at the photographer's gallery in their bookshop. And I started to really know my stuff, learn and really get the hang of it. And I started going to Paris Photo. I bought photographs because I could get a good discount at work. I'd pay for things in installments from my salary. And I started to really collect. And my old tutor who had done photography at Kingston that I'd not known that well was a regular. And he sort of, you know, we got to know each other very well. I started to write book reviews, uh, approached a, a magazine and said, look, I'll write you some book recommendations and said, great, that's great. You know, started doing that, doing it on the website, all those sorts of things. And that sort of grew till I was writing articles. And I started doing portfolio reviews with people pretty much every lunchtime. I was giving advice to people, never bought me lunch. And I thought, this is crazy. Why am I doing this for nothing? Uh, so I ended up doing that as a consult, sort of consultation thing later. But this tutor was approached to write a book on collecting photography, by which point I was a serious collector. And he said, I'm not your person. You need to ask Laura. The publisher said, well, what about it? And I said, okay. And, you know, that just grew and grew. And I realized I was at Parry Photo one year and a photographer was not having a great time. So, you know, you could do this. You know all this stuff. You know it from both sides. And I thought, yeah. And I had a conversation with some friends, uh, collectors on the way home on the Eurostar about said possibilities. And I said, well, how, how do I do that? How do I find the money to do that? And we kind of sort of came up with some ideas. And within, you know, a year, two years, it was happening. It wasn't something I'd chosen. It sort of just organically grew. I was still making my own work, but I didn't have the sort of background that made me assume I'd do an MA. Couldn't afford it. I could barely get through my degree. It wasn't an option. Had I come from a more affluent background, I've got, I'd have done an MA, done a PhD, but that wasn't an option to me. And now, even though I'm asked to give lectures, you know, any teaching or anything like that, they always expect you to have an MA, even though my book essentially was a PhD. <laughs> so it's, it's an interest. it's a very academic, very structured, very narrow world at times. Surprise, surprise, shock horror, I know, I see you gasping. I've spent most of my career fighting that and finding ways around that and doing it my way and not somebody else's way. It's quite a long answer, wasn't it? Sorry. Perfectly <laughs> fine. I love long crazy answers. Crazy long answer. <laughs> That's my job here is I wind up guests and then just let them go. You're doing a great job. <laughs> Thank you. So I have an MFA and I have all the credentials yeah. and I look great on paper and all that. However, mm. I only look great on paper having all that stuff in the academic world. So like yes. when you look at me as a artist on the gallery wall, half mm. of my stuff is all academic stuff. And so like, it doesn't really translate well to that. Like it, it's mm. one of those hard things that like, I wish in many ways that I could go back to like, day one of graduating from my MFA and somebody tell me like what I know now of things yeah. like, okay, if you want to be an artist, you need to do 
grant writing, residencies, and these kinds of things. If you want yeah. to be an academic, you have to do paper writing and presentations and other research kind of topics, things mm. that have nothing to do with making artwork. Yeah. And nobody ever told me that. Like I no, thought teaching was literally being in a classroom and then make my art on my time off. But fuck it, like 75% of it is in meetings and bureaucracy and bullshit. That is the thing I got into academia to get away from. So I, I, there's a massive <laughs> gaping hole in academia about what you do when you leave. I mean, I have, I do a lot of mentoring. I have a flurry of people contact me, usually about six months after they graduate, going, help because they're given this idea of what an artist is and how an artist lives and how amazing their lives are they're given no advice on how to get there they usually parachute me in to do one lecture <laughs> one and um wonder why i can't fit an entire progression of a career in one lecture for no money and then they're all supposed to be okay a lot of the academics who are teaching aren't actually exhibiting in that professional world. Correct. So they're in their own lane and they do very well and they earn a really good salary and, you know, well, they earn a lot more than a lot of artists do. But there's a disconnect because they're not in the real world anymore. Virtually every person who contacts me who's graduated, you know, don't have a signature on their email, for example. I mean, that's a basic requirement with a telephone number. They don't know how to use the phone. The, it's a different a world. They've been, I use the phone all the time. All the time. If I want something done quickly, I pick up the phone. I barely use the phone these days. I'd like to use it more. I like the personal I touch. I think it's but... because, I think, I mean, I am an old-fashioned girl, but it is because... I am sick of looking at the screen day and night. It is a break from that. And often people will message me and I'll say, look, I can't be bothered typing anymore. What do you want? <laughs> and that's, and it's great. You know, I mean, I had an artist who was trying to find some models, Chloe Rosso, who we were trying to find some trans models for her project, Form and Function, which is the second series. And I said, you know, she didn't want people to be limited in terms of gender. I said, you know, you need to broaden this gender out. You, you, they're sort of genderless, the photographs. It's hard to describe them, but if you look her up, you'll see what I mean. That's pretty clear, genderless. You should have, yeah, because they're sort of tucked up and you can't see any of their, you can't see their head, you can't see their hands, their feet, the genitalia, nothing. They become these sort of sculptural forms, but there's still importance to be inclusive. And she said, I've been trying to find a trans model, but every time I look something up online, it brings up sex work. And that's not what I'm interested in. Her other models were mostly life models. And I said, okay, give me an hour. I did a bit of research. I picked up the phone. I found somebody who made clothes for trans people. I phoned up the company. I sent them an email with my credentials, who I was, what the project was, who the artist was. And turned out the owner of the company ran a club in London, the oldest trans club in London, and invited us to come down with Chloe with her portfolio. She introduced us to people. And that's how we found the models to finish the project. That was me, 40 minutes that took me. Without the phone, it wouldn't have happened. See, it's funny you say that because like I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, you're right. I really would love to be able to just pick up the phone and contact all these people that I need to contact to get these things done. 
What I mm. don't want is people calling me all the fucking time. <laughs> well, that's it. You know, you have to pick your battles sometimes. It's being measured about it and thinking about it and being considerate. You know, sometimes it's just quicker than 10 emails to get one small thing done. I haven't got time to do that a lot of the time. And there's too many things in the air. So it's like, look, I've got this amount of time, you know, because I curate independently, like at some points, you know, I might have three exhibitions. 2019, I had a show on in Arles, there was a show on in Naples and a show on in London at the same time that I curated. So all those things happening at once, that's a lot of people to juggle and a lot of logistics. So sometimes you have to go, right, these are my people I work with. These are the people I trust and they're good and pick up that phone and get on with it. They hear the tone of your voice. Also the tone of something, you can't put that in an email. You can do a degree, but not really. And there's something in the trust element there that comes in when you get that personal interaction, whether it's on the phone or face to face, which I think is why it's been hard in the last couple of years, because Zoom isn't quite the same thing. You know, all those clues that you usually have to read from aren't there. You know, so it's as it's, we're it's sitting important. here doing basically a Zoom call, but yeah. But do you see what I mean? It's like you can only see so much, something out of frame, something out of context. I can see the sound things behind you. That's it. But I kind of <laughs> like that a little bit of control, like where I can say, like, this is all you get to see of my life. There, that's it. I'm not going to show you I mean, you can see a bit of the detritus behind me. Well, detritus books and stuff, lots of books. I mean, that's my. I don't need any foam on the walls. I've got so many books. I'm completely contained for sound. I've got stuff around. I've got mostly things physically on my desk. So like, I like stuff on my desk, like little puzzles. Artists are messy. And I'm things. messy. Like, yeah. yeah. So yeah. No, I put the foam here be for acoustics. Yeah. If it were up to me, I would put bookshelves back there. But this office doesn't have that much space to do that well. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I'm at my, it's my, it's my constant battle books. Like where did the new ones go? I had to work out the load bearing weight of those shelves to be 80 kilos so that I could put art books on them. So a person could lie on them and they wouldn't bow. And it was actually somebody who makes sets for film and television that made those shelves <laughs> because they don't make them that strong or big or whatever. But yeah, it was worth it. Yeah. Our books are so damn heavy. <laughs> yeah, they are. So, okay, but wait. So you were talking about, I, I'm interested in the whole fact that you're a collector because I rarely yes. can get collectors to discuss this on, on record about their collection. Because of their process. insurance. I don't think it's insurance as much as I think they like to be anonymous or private. They did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mysterious. We don't want every every person banging down your door going, look at mine. You know, because you don't want to be mean and say, I don't like it or it's not my cup of tea. <laughs> well, so well while you're tricky. saying that, my work right here is always for sale. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> kind of playing. Okay, go on. Not. Fire away. <laughs> no, I'm. I, fire I'm away. Saying, I'm fine. My website is matthewdoles.com. But the um the I know, I've seen is, Okay. And you haven't mentioned I, I did my research on you too. <laughs> okay, that's great. So 
So as a collector, like mm-hmm. how, I'm always interested, like as collectors, like how I, I've, and everybody says, oh, I buy for love and I buy because I really love mm-hmm. something. I get all that mm-hmm. kind of crap, but there's more to it. Like, so there's also like yeah. av- availability, budget, like, so like, how do you make Completely. the decision of what to collect? Because sometimes <laughs> it's filling a gap in a collection. Like, oh, I've got like yeah. all these things and I really want a Bresson or a, or an. Uh, there's different types of collector. That's something I did put in the book because I realized you get people who collect things by theme. You get people who collect things by technique, by something as specific as it has to be the mail order collector who gets the A to Z. You know, they need an Ajé and a Bresson and it's all very predictable. And it's like, here we go. Here's the, here's the white, you know, well, here's the, the white male history of photography. And we're going to get those people. One of the reasons they do that is because those works sell and resell over and over again and go up in value. A lot of it's about knowing that it's going to be safe in the market. So that those the secondary market is the test of the work. You can buy something contemporary, but the minute that artist starts to sell in the secondary market, if they're holding their price then you know you're onto a winner. So people tend to go with what's safe or what other people are collecting or institutions are collecting that they're patrons of and things like this. They're looking at, okay, what's safe? Because if they're spending a lot of money, but then there's also, you get collectors who are just completely obsessed with very specific things and have very unique individual collections on very, I mean, I know a couple of collectors who collect very morbid things and they're kind of obsessed with it in a wonderful sort of way because they're buying work that actually I couldn't live with, but I'm glad they're doing it because actually what sometimes happens and often happens is people end up with these unique sort of eclectic groups of things that only they could have collected, but actually build up a beautiful narrative and a picture in terms of what that is. So they're becoming a curator as they're collecting. So I generally collect things that fly. That's the bulk of my collection. I have a lot of airplanes, birds, I've got an occasional butterfly, helicopter. I like weather. Uh, Severe weather is always nice. Love a bit of rain. But I don't generally collect many pictures of people. I'm always surrounded by people, so I don't like to come home to a crowd. So generally, the things that I collect are more reflective. They're things that are very not like me, quiet. (laughs) But, you know, I have bought things knowing that they'll go up in value, knowing that I can resell them, and with the profit of that, put that back into collecting something else that I really want but I couldn't afford, but I could afford in a few years' time. So there's that as well. And also, you fall in love with things, but you also fall out of love with things. So it's all very well to say, oh, yeah, this is great, and you're obsessed with it, but then you stop looking at it. You know, it's good to rotate what's obviously for conservation, but it's good to rotate what's on your walls because like a person that you see for the first time, you look at them in a very detailed way and you record every bit of their face. But when you know them really well, you can tell them at a glance. You tell by their gait, the general shape, the way they move. 
you know who it is. You don't look at their features closely anymore. And the same goes for art. When you stop looking at something on your wall and appreciating it, it may as well not be there. So it's good to remember that somebody else could be enjoying this more than me. And perhaps there's something else that I could put there. doesn't mean you hate the work. It's like your taste in food changes as you get older. You know, you go from that thin cut marmalade to the thick cut stuff as you get older. The palate changes. The things that you look at change. Your life experience changes what you want to see and surround yourself with. You mature. Sadly, it doesn't, it doesn't always change for the better, but it just changes. No, it doesn't mean you're going to have any taste. But <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of that about, but it does have a relevance. The things that, yes, there are things that you enjoyed looking at when you, you know, when you first saw it and you still do, but there are also things you think, yeah, I've kind of grown out of that now. That doesn't do it for me anymore. You know? I'm trying to think in my own mind of some things that I like, like when it comes to art, uh, like looking at art or artists or styles that I've grown out of. I'd say the Dali effect. Most people's come across Salvador Dali in their teens. They're blown away by him. He's a genius. He's a maniac, but he was a genius. Fascinating work. There's a point where it hits cliche and you go, okay, love him, but I don't really want a poster or a picture on my wall. I know who I'd rather go for now. But at the age of 13, if somebody said, there's a Dali, do you want it? You go, yes, please. It's a yeah, different no, I, thing. I had done acid before I ever saw Dali. So like, it wasn't really that shocking to me. Yeah, it was a bit pedestrian. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of like, oh, yeah, I, I've already seen that. Yeah, that Thanks. bendy thing. Hmm. Yeah. No. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is interesting how taste I don't know if that answers your question. Grow. I don't know if that answers your question. But, no, you I know, if you collect... If you're collecting for a collection, depends what that collection is. If you're collecting professionally for a museum, that's one thing. There's massive gaps in lots of collections. It's who's informing that collection. And at the moment, the majority is a certain eye and it's not reflective of the population. That was the most politically correct way of saying that white men rule yeah. the arts world. Sadly, yes. Oh, I'm happy to say that as well. <laughs> but it's you true. You tried to skirt around it, though. It's true. Well, I mean, I would... Well, no, I, I mean, anyone who knows me knows I don't skirt around that. <laughs> Trust me, I spend half my life complaining about that. But it is a... Yeah, it's difficult. It's down to who holds the purse. And the majority of the time, it is that investment banker, it is that lawyer, it is that arms dealer, whoever. You know? <laughs> that Russian <laughs> oligarch, you know. Uh -huh, yeah, they're yeah. really coming into their own at the moment. So, I mean, that's horrifying. It's the last couple of days have been a bit scary and will get scarier. But I think that examination is interesting. I mean, with the all the BLM protests, it's been, you know, lots of institutions have sort of gone, hang on, we need to do something here. How much of it is tokenism and how much will be, you know, re yeah, remains to be seen. There's a lot of tokenism happening. How long that will last? I mean, I've had this fight for years about the lack of representation of women in collections women's work not being valued as highly because the people buying the work are white males.
<gasps> shock horror. So of course, somebody's output and value is not about how great their work is. It's about who's bought them. And there is that, you know, I know a very famous artists who have taken, you know, well, it's that old adage, you know, you've got to be 80 or dead as a woman to be known in the art world. You know, a man will have a master retrospective in their 60s or their 50s even, whereas a woman's literally falling into the grave to get any recognition or is dead and can't actually speak to the work. I mean, we have this sort of obsession with the tragic female, you know, the Francesca Woodman's, oh, the tragic woman who was never discovered in a lifetime and then she killed herself. Or, oh, and now look, yeah, we're making tons of money off this. Yeah, like the Vivian Mayer. Yeah, Vivian Mayer. I, I, it, it turns my stomach. And it's very, because they're not here to speak for the work. And also, it's quite interesting. I, I went to a show the other day and I said, you know, there is this thing of putting a price on something. Once somebody's established as famous and collectible, people will pick anything up off a studio floor that they wouldn't dream of exhibiting that suddenly becomes valuable. I saw work in a show yesterday where literally the paper had been folded several times, still had the tear thing on the top from the pad it was out of, obviously not for exhibition, was framed and mounted. And I just think, my God, I do try and encourage artists to present. If they drop dead tomorrow, what do you want someone to find? How would you want to be perceived? Write about it, talk about it, get used to talking about your work, put it out there so that there is that language, that voice, that identity before the museums get hold of it and change the narrative. Assuming museums ever get a hold of it. Well, they but, might not, yeah. <laughs> but also someone else might discover something. In your own lifetime, it's a good thing to do, to think about that. You know, if I did just fall off the planet today, what would somebody find? And thinking about that, cataloging your work, you know, doing all that boring stuff no one wants to do, but being organized. I know it's, 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 it's a near impossibility. No, it's not the near impossibility, but like it even goes back to like what you were talking about, about like taste changing and styles mm. changing and stuff like this. Like I, with my, let's say my digital files. So of course I've been a photographer for decades. I've got digital, I've got hundreds of thousands of digital files. Well, oh. over the course of my lifetime, the way I keep them organized, I changed like, mm. you know, 15 years ago in oh, yeah. Lightroom, I, I would put like three stars with a photo. And then now I use Lightroom and I would color code it. At one point it was green for the best one. Well, now it's purple for the best one. And, yeah. it, and I don't do the stars anymore. So, like, so you mark things for the best rather than subject. Yes. Do you do a keyword? See, a keyword search is really good. I'm always advising photographers to do that because often, you know, there might be a competition you want to enter. And if you've got a good database and you can keyword search it, you'll find stuff you've forgotten you took. Go, actually, that's bang on. Yeah, yeah. I'll enter oh, that. Yeah. I've, I've got all that stuff. I've got like my best of my best sort of organized in a subcategorized way that I could easily access, yeah. access them for that kind of purpose. But what I'm concerned about is what you're talking about. Like, what if I drop dead tomorrow? Nobody knows my system <laughs> like, so mm. i have a system of keeping this organized but if i were to die nobody knows 
and understand sort of the, has a legend to the key system that I put together of how well, everything get organized. one written then get on it what do you want me to tell you well uh, uh. do it write it down put it in a folder if I die on the spine done bosh <laughs> If, if I, I die, die for, find for info here. For these 10 years, green yeah. are the best, but for these 10 years, purple are the best. There you go. See, that's easy. It took two minutes. Well, yeah, and that sounds lovely. If I also <laughs> had a place where I could put that document that somebody would know to look for it. So, like, But also, I mean, if you went back through them, would you still give them a green or a purple? This is the thing. I, no. I would absolutely, yeah. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. If I were to look mm. back on myself, I would probably love the, what I, at the time I thought were the horrible photos, the worst photos from the shoot. Now I would probably look, I'd be like, oh, that's such, that's so in the moment. It's so, so subtle, so lovely, so intimate. And I think Whereas that's something <laughs> that you can lose with digital because you edit and delete so fast. You miss a lot of those. Yeah, it's a very important thing to just let it steep. I never delete, period. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I, I, I hate hearing about photographers who delete or, or trash Storage their negatives. Storage nightmare, like though, huh? I mean... Good Lord. Yes. I, at last count, I have going? 36 hard drives. And you've got duplicates of those hard drives as well, yeah, hopefully. So technically, it's 18 hard drives yeah. that have duplicates. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, a Dropbox folder with a couple terabytes on it, too. So, yeah. Yeah. It's the constant bane of my life is storage. It's quite funny, though, because, you know, photographers whinge and whine about it, but essentially you can put it on something this big. You try and be a painter or a sculptor. I mean, this storage is a whole other world. Oh, yeah. I tell my wife all the time, I'm like, you're, re you're really lucky that I'm not a stone sculptor. Yeah. The paintings that I make are usually around a meter square. That's my favorite size. And they usually thicker frames i put the wood side on instead of flat so they they take up a lot of space but not like a stone sculpture no i mean i had to get well <laughs> probably luckily when i was at college in australia the sculpture department closed down because of lack of funds so i was going to major in painting and minor in sculpture but because of the studio closing down i ended up doing printmaking oh. as my second elective so I could have ended up with that. I mean, I still make things on a smaller scale, still do sculptures, but not on that scale anymore. It's, yeah, I mean, big is great. When I was at school, my teacher, who was amazing, I mean, health and safety wasn't a thing back then because this was in the olden days, you know. I ended up with my own studio space when I was doing my GCSE. So this is like 14 to 16. And I used to be allowed in the metal workroom because I was really good with metal with a blowtorch and a soldering iron and I could just make I made a sculpture that was seven foot high which had to go in the entrance of the school because there's nowhere else to put it on my own <laughs> just welding things together and I used to be able to do that all the time just go into there and put something together cut it up again if I didn't like it start again I mean there's no way I'd have had the space to do that outside of that space it was it was wonderful but yeah i mean metalwork is something i love wood i don't have as much time with stone great 
you know, carving away, lovely. But metal is a whole other, yeah, that's a lot of space needed. Oh, yeah, and gear, yeah. I mean, I'm all about yeah, wood. Yeah, a lot of gear. Because when I was uh, when I was a young photographer, I found frames to be extraordinarily expensive, and so I was like, "Well, mm. fuck it, I'm just going to learn woodwork and build own. my own yeah. frames." Not that difficult. So I, yeah. Yeah. No, it's really not that difficult. Everybody thinks it's so difficult. It's really not. No, my frames and it saves are the, you a the ton of money. Of my, yeah, because I might even have a crossbar on them and everything. It, wait, that's that's obvious to put a crossbar You'd be at one amazed. meter by one You'd meter. You'd be amazed at uni how many people made frames that had no crossbar on them. I mean, how this... I, I remember seeing a, a frame, a work by a very famous painter in the ICA when I was at college, and it didn't have obviously didn't have a cross piece on the back, and the bottom right corner of it was literally nearly a foot off the wall. But because it had a reference to a famous event it was collected and is worth a lot of money now but i was appalled at the state of that frame absolutely appalled but you know yeah but yeah that that basic quality is kind of you back to the craftsmanship thing it's it's important to any output whether it's you know painting sculpture writing whatever it has to be you have to be able to stand by it because you don't want to be embarrassed by it later Depends. If you can. I mean, yeah. But okay, speaking of that, since you are both a purveyor of photography, you sell it mm. and you collect it, how important, since you are sort of both sides of that that coin, uh -huh. are archival materials? Oh, hugely important. Massively. Do you know what though? The thing that everyone forgets about is insects. They remember the light, they remember the damp, they remember the temperature. They always forget insects get into frames. You've got to be really good about that. Really good about that. I don't think I've ever had an insect in a frame. You probably had them framed properly. Oh, okay. Or good. stored okay. properly. <laughs> but I have noticed that's one thing, depending on where you live as well, it's interesting, like framing. I've had things where I've had it framed by an artist and then the frame itself has been an issue. And I've gone, what on earth? You know, what is this? You know, wood isn't inert. So there's all sorts of things you've got to be very careful about. But yeah, archival's hugely important. I mean, if, if you want it to last, of course. And, you know, it's that thing of rotating work, not having it out forever, not being in direct sunlight, all the usual. Yeah, absolutely. Massively important. I think that because there's a lot of inkjet printing as well, that scratches very easily. I ha I saw a piece in a show in a major museum two days ago, which had a scratch on it. And I was like, ah, okay. I wonder why. Because it hadn't been handled properly at some point, but it was still on the wall. And I could see it through the glass. I was mortified by that. There's this one paper, I'm not going to name brand and everything, but there's this one particular inkjet paper that like, I love the texture of it. I love the tone of it. I love the the saturation of it. Everything is magnificent, except literally if you just even touch the paper with your fingers, you, you've scratched it. You've just like the the ink just like flakes off of it. It's the most annoying thing. So like, yeah, I mean, there's one thing to like archivalness, but there's also like strong Handling. and stable. You want it like so that it can be touched or, or at least handled without concern, I guess. 
Well, the you know the magic glove brigade, everyone getting cotton gloves. I'm like, don't use cotton gloves; they're a bad idea. Sorry, what? Cotton gloves. Basically, don't use them. Use nitrile gloves. Cotton oh, gloves. Yeah. Okay. It's cotton. It's got fibers. You can get dirt in it that can scratch things. The oil from your fingertips can go through the fabric. Don't use it. Basically, a long time ago, someone took a picture of somebody handling something with cotton gloves because it looked better and it caught on. Bad idea. Yeah, no, no, I totally understand. I've all, I always wondered. I'm like, how, so like you. It's just like, like the magician, you know. Here we go. Well, well, but like if you have, let's say, I don't know, you're just like sweaty hands, and you put on a cotton glove, that sweat is still going to go through that cotton glove. Yeah. Exactly. So, or, you know, so it's like, I've always been like, so how is that really helpful? I mean, I guess it, it does give a barrier, quote unquote, but mm. like, it's really not an But also that, that cotton, you know, that cotton does hold on to dirt as well and dust, whereas a nitrile glove won't, obviously, uh, you know, it, that's not going to happen. Agreed. Nothing's going to stick it, yeah. to it. Yeah. So things like that. I mean, it's... It's quite funny. I mean, I don't know if you have that here. The the I I say the G word. Um, the the G clay. That's one of my pet peeves. <laughs> I wrote a whole I, I wrote a whole blog post about it many years ago, and I think somebody was working with it had mentioned the G word, and I said, "I don't use that. Don't use that. It's either an inkjet. It's a pigment print. It's not a G. I'm not going there." And and he said, "Why does it just read the blog post?" So, like, oh, I see. <laughs> oh, it means. Oh, I see. It's nonsense. I'm not a fan of the term gicle. I never was, but the, the, well, I, you know what it means in French, right? Yeah, spit. Yeah. To squirt. Yeah. Which I like that phrasing, but no. <laughs> Quite funny. So you, yeah. I mean, it's a nonsense. It's it's just trying to say. I mean, it's like my least favorite art speak word: juxtaposition. I like Don't get me started. Don't get me started on juxtaposition. No. I like that. It's a good it's word. always used. Oh, it's a word that's overused. It's usually used wrongly. It's just trying to sound clever, you know. Just no. Yes, I do. And that's why I like overused. that word. It makes me sound clever. Yeah. What's wrong with that? It does. <laughs> if you, you know, you can say something intelligent without saying a word that is you just pretentious. You could just say, in relation to the thing next to it, <laughs> there you go, juxtaposition. You just explain yeah. it. Yeah. yeah it, it, it's, or it, you know, it's that art speak is kind of, I mean, I remember <gasps> all those art, that scrambly website where you put in nonsense and it is, it's sort of hilarious and frustrating. Oh, I, I love it. it. I still have my, my little uh, 500 word thing from them. I have that. I love it. But okay. But you brought up the inkjet versus pigment print. I'll be honest. I've been in photography for going on almost 30 years now. I'm not even sure what's the difference between an inkjet and a pigment. There isn't okay. really. I mean, it's it's terminology. It's terminology. What? And it, and it's brands and it's various, you know, papers and stuff. I mean, for me, I, I remember, actually, I remember the first time I bought a digital photograph was a big moment. Like, that was a big thing in terms of technology. It was like, oh, you know, this is a big jump. I'm buying something that's oh, it's been taken on a digital camera. Will it be collectible? You know, but it was an airplane, so I had to have it. So it was one of those. And it was, you know, it was kind of interesting. But that 
I wouldn't have known about that had I not been at Perifoto and run into another collector and I'd said, oh, how are you? Fine, great. Found anything interesting? Bought anything interesting? Oh, yeah, I've just bought an airplane. Where? Sorry, who? Right, bye. And I just ran. <laughs> I, got, I got what I wanted. Hilarious. I mean, it was... You know, but then it was like, oh, it's digital. The only way it could have been taken was digital at the time, the way that it was made. So it sort of, at the time, justified it being a digital photograph because it was, yeah. So it's interesting how that is no longer a consideration at all now. It's not even, but then, you know, I had to sort of measure up in my head, is, oh, is this valid? Is this a good idea? Well, see, like years ago, probably what, 10, 15 years ago at this point, probably 15 years ago at this point, I had <laughs> conversations with students and even with other photographers about like, will digital replace silver gelatin and, and now what are referred to as like alternative historical processes? No. And, I, and I was constantly of the position, I said, no, all it's going to do is it's going to make those other traditional processes into a more sort of hand of the artist, a unique and more highly valuable form of a print. More expensive to make. <laughs> Yeah, they're Basically. more expensive to make, and so therefore they're yeah. more expensive to buy at versus yeah. the digital, which will become the, well, I mean, not to say affordable, because I know some very expensive digital prints, but mm. but they're more accessible, they're easier to reproduce and all this kind of stuff. So therefore, you know, the, yeah. the, the value of these handmade prints will still hold up, if not elevate over time, I believe. And I hope that's still true. <laughs> It is still true. And right. I, you know, I mean, I have a thing with paper and prints anyway. I mean, yeah, with certain, I mean, I did a show Photo 50 and I remember going to New York to see Elizabeth Hayat and see the prints in the flesh. And she makes these, you know, she has these enormous silver gelatin prints, which are stunning. And I know I love them a lot because I wanted to bite the paper. You know, that thing where you just want to put something in your teeth? where it's really good, like, to test it. I want to lick it, but I don't yeah. bite. It's literally you want to put it in your mouth, and, it, and, it, and then I was like, oh, yeah, these are good. I really want to munch on these ones. <laughs> it's great. And they were, you know, produced, printed by the same person who does Sugamoto's prints. They were beautiful, absolutely beautiful prints. And, you know, they're sort of a metre 50. I mean, they were amazing. Yeah, huge for Silver Gelatin and just exquisite, you know. And, yeah, there is... Also, yeah, that there's a lot of skill that gets lost. I mean, I often have discussions with people graduating who want to be assistants, yet they've never used a lighting rig. And I'm like, you cannot get work if you don't know how to operate the kit. You just that's what you do. You'll be that's basically the job for the first few years is carrying kit, setting up lighting and getting the tea and running around doing whatever needs to be done. You need to know how to do this so that you get these sort of fine art sort of element, because obviously you've got to earn money as well as make your work. And if you're not taught those fundamentals, it's like doing, you know, I mean, I, I mean, it does happen though. I mean, I remember getting to uni and noticing how many people couldn't draw perspective properly. I was gobsmacked at that, 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 wasn't just part of their toolkit. That should be part of your basic requirements. You don't have to use it, but it should be some, you know, you should know how an aperture works. 
it's the same thing, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that should be a basic thing you can do. And I think quality standards, certain things have dropped because there's a lot of things that do things for you now and work things out for you. You know, it's a bit like, I mean, if I go to a store and I'm paying with cash, obviously not that often now, most of it's card, but, you know, if I work out the change and give them something so I get a certain amount back, you see the teller going, huh? I don't understand. (laughs) I can't do mental arithmetic. It's like, really? It's not that complicated, but it's just, you know, handwriting. People don't write things down. I, I send letters. I'm really old fashioned, like a proper old lady with that. I, I write letters to people and have people who write to me all the time. I love it because it's something away from a computer. We've got, got a lovely handwriting. Like It's because I do it. It's not because I've got amazing handwriting. It's just because I do it. And when you don't do it, you get lazy. You know, everyone writes like a doctor nowadays. <laughs> it's a general practice. I'm not showing you my handwriting then. That's fine. <laughs> you know, but I, I'm a I'm a sucker for stationery and a good fountain pen. So what can I say? Absolutely. I st- I actually have my, we have a family crest. My like my Ooh, seal. get you. And I've even got stationery with the crest embossed into it, so I can actually then seal my letters with a wax seal and everything. I have a wax seal, but for the gallery, which some one of my um. One somebody worked with me, Jenny uh, Nash, uh, got me for Christmas one year, which I absolutely love, which has the Lang on it, which is fabulous. But yeah, so we'd, I don't have a family crest. I kind of want to, well, it, yeah, I, I've been wearing this family crest thing for, I don't know, 20 years now. My father just this year told me, he's like, oh, you know our family crest? That was just my grandfather, so his, his father, my grandfather just mm-hmm. walked into a store and said, oh, I want a crest. And so he just bought whatever was in the store and just put our name on it. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, Totally made it brilliant. For decades, I've been thinking that this is like That's in the so House American. of Parliament somewhere in Germany or something. And it turns it's like out, people no, buying titles, isn't it? It's absolute nonsense. The fucker just went into a store and just basically had our name engraved at the bottom of whatever was in the and store. And you've been living a lie. For you've decades. been living a lie all these that, years. That is not the only lie I've been living, but that's the only lie I've found out about or you're willing to admit to (laughs) (sighs) no no i admit to almost every other lie i'm aware of granddads are great at making stuff up though i mean it's part of their job well but the the irony the horrible irony of the whole thing is quite honestly that might just be my dad lying also so (laughs) it happens it happens so i'm not sure who is the liar and who's telling the truth like maybe my grandfather lied to my dad and maybe it really is a a family maybe this well you need to do some homework i mean there's there are tools for those things now you can find out oh yeah we have a family we have a shield uh the our family heritage we have all that kind of stuff but yeah anyways Mm -hmm. it's it's just ridiculous Boy, family lies, I tell you. The amount of stuff. So many. (laughs) Did I mention my father's a priest? 
Aha! Yeah. <laughs> now we, now, yeah, now we get to the nitty gritty. <laughs> no, no, no. My, my dad, he's a pretty honest guy. But there are a lot of things that, let's say, not spoken about. I think that's generally the case for most families. I think that's part of the job description, isn't it? Yeah, it's not, it's not an overt lie, but more of a lie of omission by just simply not discussing that thing. Fair enough. I mean, you know, under the carpet, can't see it. Jobs are good. Are you related to my parents? Because I believe that's their mantra. <laughs> is, that their, is that the family motto? <laughs> if, if the public doesn't see it, it didn't happen. It doesn't exist. If you can't see it, it's not there. It's not there. It's just not there. No. I mean, it's kind of interesting, really. I mean, the whole... Yeah. I mean... I... Luckily, I know my parents don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> But that's that's inherent in being creative because most I always say if you're going to be any good at anything, you've got to be nosy. Because that's yeah, a good artist is nosy. Well, so my fa my father just, is an iconographer. Got to be curious. Ah, there you go. Yeah. So see, both my well, yeah, my dad's a great photographer. My mum could taught me how to draw and shade properly because she used to draw hairstyles when she was at hairdressing college. So you said had to look. So she could draw a head really well. So she showed me how to use things, you know. But I used to have. I mean, I used to have drawings taken off me at school because I was obsessing. I mean, literally, I wasn't socialising with other kids because I was so obsessively drawing. They would take things away, and I wish I had those drawings now. Be lovely to. See. I got obsessed with a geranium once for three weeks. We were told to draw a geranium. Don't ask me why. On a bit of. That horrible rough paper that you get at school with oil pastels, but obviously not without any white spirit to soften them up. So it was really hard work. And I, yeah, three weeks I spent on that thing. I can't look at a geranium <laughs> without a flinch of that memory. But I'd love to see that drawing now. So many lost drawings in, the, in our history. Oh, yeah. oh my God. I've got my first, I do still have my first book though, which I made when I was seven. My parents still have my first drawing that ever I won an award. It's, not, it's here. In fact, it is here. It's called Belinda Banana and Gary Grapefruit. And they're both yellow. And they're both yellow. It's it's the best. I mean, it's. It, I'm still, yeah, it, it turned up fairly recently and I'm I'm very excited about it. Right. It's very bizarre. It's it's quite a twisted mind. Even then, there's some really weird stuff that goes down. But you know, I love how that you're was acting like I should be surprised by that. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't known each other that long, but I feel like you really get me. <laughs> I, yeah, you're not that hard to read. Nothing personal. <laughs> I am. Yeah, I am. What you see is what you get. Pretty much, yeah. Okay, but let's get back to some business-related stuff because that's oh, the okay. stuff that actually mm. fascinates me because it's oh. the shit I don't understand, but you seem to understand. Okay. So. Okay, I right, hope so. So you run a gallery, and this gallery sells yes. primarily photography. So yes. how do you choose who to rep? Or, okay, first of all, I guess the question would be, do you represent people? Yes, or do you I just do. sell yes. people? So, okay. You no, I represent people. How do you like, yep. Okay. 
I know it's always like the the nature of the, the it's a relationship, whether you like the person, whether the work speaks to you, like all that kind of stuff. I got all that. The, the, those, sure. are the, okay. those are the obvious things. So I'm not asking that, but I'm asking what's the mm-hmm. additional characteristic, the something special that differentiates the people that you choose to represent from people you don't choose, who might be lovely people to work with, might make beautiful work, but they don't have that mm. thing. What's that different thing? I mean, first and foremost, there's loads of people I'd like to represent, but I don't have enough hours in the day. Speaking of which, here's my artwork. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) And it's if I'm selling something or if I'm talking to a client about the work, I have to be all in. There's no point in, I mean, I'm not a blue chip gallery i'm not about yeah you know of course but it's you know it isn't you have to believe in that work but what's the thing it's really hard to quantify i mean here let me like make it a little more precise so let's say there were two artists two photographers because we're talking photography two photographers that went to the same school had the same training, Mm -hmm. had did all the same Mm -hmm. qualifications like on their CV. So let's say all their CV pretty much. CV's got, I'm not interested in that. Fair enough. Love to hear that. So, but let's say they're all identical. Okay. And then, then, so then the quality of the work, as far as you're concerned, is equal. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, is then why would you choose to represent one and not the other? So there's a couple of things. Do you have the clients? Do you have the buyers? What are people coming to you for? What are they expecting to see? There's that. Yeah. Is there someone else out there who does it? What are they doing better? There's the slow waterfall brigade. Not my thing. You know, the long exposure waterfalls. Not for me. But there are people. But there are a dime a dozen. There's tons of them. Has somebody cornered the market in that thing and yes. does it really well and there's no room for another one? Probably. Are they doing something different or doing it in a way that's authentic in terms of their pros? Because you do get one-trick ponies. You get people who are doing things in a cynical way. They're trying to make work for the art market rather than trying to make art. You can often tell that through speaking with somebody. It's usually talking with them about things that are nothing to do with their work that gives you an insight into that human being and where they're coming from and what they believe in and what their approach to the arts is. And, you know, I have this conversation a lot with photographers where they go, where I'll say, oh, have you looked at so-and-so? And they're like, yeah, I don't look at anyone else's work. And I'm like, really? I said, look, what, like, like, would you tell an architect not to look at buildings? No. <laughs> so don't give me that. You need a jumping off point. You need to know your stuff. You need to know your history because it helps that you're not replicated. Just because you've looked at it doesn't mean you're going to subconsciously replicate it, but it's good to know it's out there because you need to dig deeper. I think a lot of the time artists, it's the ones that dig really deep that are more interesting to me in terms of whether it's their own psyche or the subject that they're delving into. They're the ones that stand out. And also, 
if you've only been doing something for five minutes, you might not be doing it five minutes later. So when I look at emerging artists, you kind of sometimes have to sort of test the waters. So that's one of the reasons, you know, that's one of the great things when I started Fix. Photo Festival, I could bring in people who might not have had many opportunities. They could be part of something. Also, you see what they like to work with, because again, usually in a group show of any kind, there'll be one or two people who take up 90% of your time that you want to drop kick into the Thames by the end of it. And those people you'll never work with again. And if anyone else mentions to you, so-and-so, don't work with them. It doesn't take long. It's a very small world. The photography world is like a knitting circle. Everybody knows everybody. There's always a mutual connection somewhere along the way. Wait, do, um, do you did you know about me? Does the knitting circle did had you I've ever heard, heard some of me terrible before? thing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated. I am I'm not saying anything <laughs> about my potential reputation in the world. Like I, I would love to hear what people have to say about me. But it's really interesting, and also I'm sure say about me. But usually, people know people know if someone's worked with me that they're a safe pair of hands because they know I've put them through the ringer because I demand good practice, because I have very high standards for myself, so I expect that to happen as well. Just how people present themselves. You know, yes, it is the work, fundamentally, it is the work, but being able to have a conversation with somebody about their work and what it's about, there's a lot of gut instinct there. There's a lot of gut instinct there that happens where you go, yeah, this is the real deal. You kind of feel it. And it's happened many times where I've seen something really at somebody's work quite early on and gone, that's amazing. And then 10 years later, they're huge. And that's wonderful. Or I've done a portfolio of you, somebody who's gone, they're going places. At that moment, I wasn't in that position. Now it's like, well, yeah. You know, I've spoken to people who've been put off there was one artist who I spoke to once who'd basically been told by a dozen portfolio reviews that they should go back to fashion and s stay doing what they were doing there. And I'd gone, absolutely not. This is really important and really interesting. Keep going. Two years later, they were the darling of all. So it's not unheard of. It's that accumulation of looking and having an eye for things that is really hard to define. I mean, if somebody asks me how long is a piece of string, I can answer that question. It's twice the length from the middle. But I can't answer the question, what is a great artist? Because that changes from one to the other. All right. I've got a very specific question within that. So like, let's say okay. you're thinking about an artist. Racing myself in. For your roster. <laughs> And so, like Ooh. the 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 question I have is like, are you seeking a, a, an artist that is sort of doing something that you believe will be interesting in a couple years? Sometimes, sometimes, yes. Do you try to set the trends, or are you following the trends? Is really what the question? No, I try to. and set trends. I try and set trends because there's no point in following because you're already out of time anyway. It's already happened. Fair enough. I mean, that's the same position I have. So yeah. Okay. But you you but you also said something about 
uh, what how an artist talks about their work. Now, do you mean written artist statements or like? No, 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 no. Just having a conversation. I mean, lots of really good artists can't write to save their lives. Correct. And I'm always saying, you know, if the lights go out, you don't call a plumber. If that's not your superpower, get somebody whose superpower it is. You know, I've written artist statements. I write texts for books all the time. You know, I go through things. I go through things in my own artist. Say, okay, well, you've written this, but let's kind of jiggle this around. This is more, this has more clarity. And also, a lot of the time, you know, I do it with my own work. You know, it's good to read it out loud. It's good to have someone else look at it. It's worth investing a little bit of money and paying somebody to write something that you can then use for your website, when you have a show, when you need a bio for something, blah, 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 blah. You know, if it's under a certain amount of words, and there isn't, you know, because obviously a writer always retains copyright, but it's it's worth doing because you can use that and it is worth its weight in gold in the long run because you know it's well written, it's clear, it's interesting. I did see an artist recently who had, instead of having an about section on their website, had artist statement, but then the artist statement was in the third person. Huh? Have about, put it in the third person. Jobs are good. It's little things like that that trip people up because when a curator or somebody who's maybe getting work together to group together for a show and they're looking, those little things add up, you know, and show that that person isn't ready. If you can't string a sentence together and write something grammatically correct in an email, or put a signature on your email, how is somebody going to think you're a safe pair of hands when it comes to text for a wall piece, wall panel, or a, th things like that are important. And if that's not the thing you're good at, Get somebody who is. You still have creative control if you don't like what they've written. It's true. Just hire somebody else to write something better. Yeah. <laughs> or just more to your liking. Yeah. Done. You know, it's not. Yeah. Continuing on with these business-minded things. <laughs> okay. Well, because we can wax on poetically about, like, artistic this and that for decades. Like, that's not that interesting, I feel like, to a certain extent but the 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 ins and outs because i mean i came to creating this podcast because as you said earlier basically i've been in academia and i'm teaching the next generation mm. and i'm teaching mm. the next generation a bunch of bullshit that i learned 30 years ago mm. not what's going on today like how yeah. to run <laughs> your artistic business now mm. and so the the point of this podcast is to find out how should we run our artistic business now so that leading on to the question of because you're a photography gallery, mm. I know that over the years there's been this waxing and waning of editions, edition sizes, yep. tiered yep. pricing, all these different kinds of things. What's the current sort of uh, trend in edition sizes and or tiered pricing? Less is more. Two sizes, ideally, three at a push. Not that crazy about three, but occasionally it makes sense. The sizes, you know. Small, big. Yeah, 
But also, I mean, I'm always telling people, use a standard size. Those standard sizes are there for a reason. The physical sizes. Because they're cheap to frame. Because otherwise you're spending a bomb in framing. And, you know, I just say mark up a wall with the different paper sizes, project that image, see how it feels, go out the room, make a cup of tea, come back in, how do you feel about it? Try a different size. See which those two are. Does the size relate to the work? Because sometimes it's important that the work's tiny. It doesn't have to be big. It's not It's not the 90s. It isn't art by the square foot anymore. So, you know, <laughs> there was a lot of trash that appeared in the 90s that was just, oh, it's big, it's great. Whatever. It has still has to have some kind of meaning, but also a collector who's taking a punt on somebody potentially isn't necessarily going to buy a massive piece, but they might buy a small work. You know, you can always fit a small piece in, but you can't, you have to, there's more consideration when it's a larger work. Does it need, will it go on the wall? Is it going to have to be stored? Blah, blah, blah. So there's all that involved as well. Less is more. People kind of get greedy and go, oh, but this one's really popular and I'll make another edition. Well, you're basically insulting the person who's bothering to buy your work at top dollar by them making another edition. You're cancelling yourself out. You want work to sell out. You want an, an image to sell out so that when your next series comes out, they buy it when they see it so they don't miss it this time. It's important. I mean, I know collectors who don't collect more than seven, including APs, unless there's seven or less. It's interesting. I noticed because looking at the market and watching the market, you know when things are getting a bit tight when there's suddenly loads of that because people are going, I need to suddenly make some value here by just doing one or putting some paint on top of that print and therefore it's unique because I've done it in a different gesture on the next print. Like, does it mean anything? Is there a reason for that being unique? I don't buy it. I saw a lot of that where it's just completely cynical. So if it's unique, why? You know, I'm always asking people, what is it? Why is it? Why should I look at it? You know. My favorite question. I love the question, why? Like, why yeah. are you taking this picture? And why should I care? Exactly. You know, it's like when somebody doesn't present their work very well when they're showing work. You know, if you don't care about how you handle your work, why should I care about it? If you're just chucking it, it's important, you know, to get that right. How you present something has a massive bearing on how someone's receiving it. If you can't be bothered framing it, you know, it's better to have two pieces on a wall printed well, framed beautifully, than 10, you know, that are a bit shabby. Yes, it might be, you know, it and it depends on the environment. It doesn't mean that putting work up with magnets is a problem because it, it might work. It might suit the work. But again, just, yeah, quality, important. But editions is less is more. Less is more, basically. And, and, a, and a collector, this is one thing that I don't think people realize, Often people don't know what an AP is. And because also with digital printing, you know, there's a there's a certainty in what the print's going to be. It's if you're not dodging and burning something, it's like it is a throwback from an analog time. However, you know, you should think about that because you should have an AP that you keep. That should be your pension in theory. 
I recently heard a story from a printmaker also in the UK, and he told me that you should also create what he calls an insurance copy, which is a print that in case one of your images get damaged in shipping to the buyer, that they basically can go back and sign and number that one, this, this insurance copy, uh, to replace it if it's damaged in transport. And I'm like, that is an amazing idea. Or if it's damaged in transport, you ask somebody to tear up the print and show you the evidence of that tearing up. And then you send the next one with so that that certificate is with it. I mean, I've 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 torn up happily torn up work with some people, but I've torn up work that's been in a show that they've not been bothered to pick up, and they've gone well, you know. Said right, well, I, it needs to be destroyed, and I'll send you the proof. Or do you want to get it collected? Yeah, no, destroy it. Great, you know. Or you you might have a museum set which tours, but that that isn't signed, you know. Sorry, when I was in college, my uh, my professors also told us the same thing. They said, when you're done with your stuff, if it's not perfect, if it's not your gallery ready thing, tear it up. And so, so I what I did was I I worked in the the studio in the in the dark room, and so every day at the end of the day, I would actually go through the trash and find the beautiful pieces that had been torn up and tape them back together. And I now have a collection of deconstructed, you know, Frank Depernas, my professors See? or some other people that I went to school with. I mean, Susan Hiller would burn stuff and use the ashes. Great. Why not? I love them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think how, like with any artwork, how you approach it is your output and what's left. I mean, the other thing is, I mean, it is self-regulating to a point, but if something pops up on the secondary market and you're edition number two and some someone else has got edition number two because you've made two of them on the sly, you, your career's over. So keep track yes. of that stuff. And tiered pricing's fine because, you know, you might have a body of work that's, and also, you know, you might want to put your prices up after a few years, you know, that the, the life of that project might change. It might have toured the world. So, of course, it'll be more worth more two years later. Staggering the pricing is fine because if something's less available, it's, yeah, why not? I don't think there's a problem in that. I mean, there is there are people who just really do take the mick but there's also you know collectors will have they always count the ap's within the edition when you're adding up in your head what that edition is i count the ap's in my head as well i don't just go i mean you know so some artists did like i mean helmut newton did loads of ap's i mean there were more than there were in the edition of the time but you know yeah. No, surprise, surprise. Um, but, you know, generally, if I ask someone how many APs and they don't know the answer, the warning sign goes up, okay, I'm not buying from them. Especially where, or, or if a, you know, or if a gallery doesn't know about the work and the project or the process or whatever it is, and you're going, well, if you don't know, mm -hmm. So you, you do, a li there's little, there's questions that you, you know, there's things that you check that I've, I've been in, I was in a space once that was in Brooklyn that was selling portfolios of Regenco. 
limited edition of 50 portfolios for $25,000 for 20 or 25 prints. And I thought that's way too cheap. There's something not right here. This is not right. And there was an exhibition. It was really good. And went in. I said, okay, can I have a look at these portfolios? So could I see two at the same time, please? Okay. She didn't, like, the, the warning lights should have gone off for her the minute I said that, but they didn't because she didn't know what she was doing. And I opened these portfolios, and lo and behold, they weren't an edition, and they were fake. So I said, you need to take these, uh, withdraw these from sale because they're not the real deal because there's loads of paper in that part of the world that was acquired and then things were printed on, so they seemed like they're older than they are. And they weren't in addition. And then it was obviously somebody who was scamming this gallerist who was selling this product that she was getting a cut of through a third party. And she went, oh, my God, thank you so much. I was like, I hope you haven't sold any. No, good. Put them away. Send them back. You're, you're being conned here. So it's, you know, you, you kind of get a feel for it. If somebody's edition is successful and suddenly they bring out another they're dead to me. Fair enough. All right. Do you have any, I know you do portfolio reviews, you do consultation for collectors yeah. and all this kind of stuff and mentoring. So do you have any sort of adv last advice uh, for younger creative people as far as getting into the market, getting into the industry, whatever kind of uh, knowledge or specialization you have? Be polite. Never assume assumptions the mother of all fuck-ups. Like, seriously, I've had so many experiences where people, uh, at your degree show, don't get hammered because you don't know who you're talking to. You might meet somebody who may be really helpful to you. Like, get drunk afterwards. <laughs> I know it's sort of like, oh, relaxing, but actually, yeah, be polite. I mean, that's really a key one. Have a good, you know, ask the person that you're about to talk to, do you want me to talk you through or would you prefer just to look? Because everyone has their own style of reviewing. I'm happy to look at someone's work as they tell me about the project and I can do those two things at once. I had a guy recently who basically, I mean, it was his first portfolio reviews, but I mean, obviously it was a white guy, uh, older persuasion, and he talked at me. And he assumed I had no older, of course he was older. And he thought I knew nothing. And I just went, I'm oh, sorry, look, I know. You know, it's, he'd mentioned something. And it's amazing. It is fabulous how many assumptions are made. You know, I'm not posh. I'm not blonde. I don't have blue eyes. I didn't go to the right school. So I don't fit that mold. I mean, I'm in, in the UK. There's a lot of class elements involved here as well as ethnicity and all those things i know i watched downton abbey oh yeah things have not changed no <laughs> well kind of in a way they haven't it, ironically it's ridiculous but true however i don't know what that person knows and what their intelligence level is and uh, just as they don't know mine so learn that or you can learn something from everybody and anyone you meet so make the most of that opportunity 
years ago as an owl, the day before the portfolio reviews began, and I met up with somebody who was incredibly, I mean, was with a friend and we were having a glass of rosé in the Forum Square, as you do, acclimatizing to the the general ambiance of, of France and the heat. And I said, oh, are you photographer or reviewer? Because usually people in that there for that week are one or the other. And so I'm a photographer. I said, oh, tell me about your work. I don't have a, an ego issue. I'm not, I can't talk to you about your work unless we're in a portfolio review situation. I'm quite happy to have that conversation. I mean, oh, for God's sake, an opening week. So he proceeded to patronize me in the way that was kind of quite impressive. <laughs> and, and at some point said something about the Fibonacci sequence and then said, oh, and he started to explain what that was. And I said, yeah, I'm quite aware of what the Fibonacci sequence is. In fact, I just wrote a text for some artists for a show in Texas that focused on it. And the guy went, oh, oh, really? Because he recognized the photographers and he was like, he sort of stood back and said, oh, sorry, what's your name again? And I said, Laura Noble. And he went, oh, I've got a review with you tomorrow. <laughs> I was burst out laughing. It was the funniest thing ever. And he was mortified. He was so embarrassed. I've never seen someone so sheepishly walk into a review the next day. It's hilarious because he made assumptions and he still sends me invites to his shows. It is that thing. Assume that everybody you meet could teach you something and you'll learn quicker and you'll get there quicker because you'll take that advice and run with it, and the next bit of advice, and run with it. Look at what other people who are doing well, who are on in a similar position, what it is that they're doing. Are they using social media in a really good way? Have they figured that algorithm out? Twitter, people don't use Twitter. They sort of have this fear of Twitter. It's a really good research tool. You can find all sorts of people on Twitter that you may not come across Googling. There's all sorts of things that are useful that just because you don't like doing them, uh, you have to learn how to kill your darlings and suck it up every once in a while and do the stuff that you don't enjoy because that's life and that's the real world. It's not always fun. <laughs> Sorry. I wish it was. I wish it was all unicorns and rainbows, but it's really not. Yeah, social media is my Achilles heel by far. That's horrible. It's a horrible thing. It's a, It's a bane of all our lives but it needn't well, be some people if... seem to do it incredibly well though and i am by far not one of those people we all have our superpowers you know it, it might be making the perfect cup of tea and that might be much more interesting you know it's i believe social media might be my kryptonite more than my superpower so again find somebody who has it as a superpower. Do you have a transferable skill? You could help them with something else. Maybe you could do pictures for their website in exchange for them running your social media for a certain amount of time. I mean, there's all kinds I of things you can do. I the, the bartering system. Hell I yeah. wish there was more bartering going on. Like I'm, I'm all for like, I've been even doing things like trading artwork with guests on the podcast. I'm like, Hey, I just got to know somebody really cool and they make cool artwork. Let's trade. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great thing. You know, if you have a skill or a, sometimes it's just having some time for somebody that makes a difference, you know, 
asking the questions. So look, you know, I'm not there yet, but what advice would you give me? Like asking the question you just asked me, because it's also admit, I think there's this thing of this bravado that you have to fake it till you make it. And you've got to pretend like everything's amazing and you're doing really well all the time. And we all know everyone's struggling. We all know that. So if you do meet somebody at an event, don't take up masses of their time because they have to talk to lots of people probably. You know, a private view, I get 30 seconds on average with each person. I might meet 200 people in one evening. I can't remember everyone's name, but I'll probably remember what they said to me if it was interesting. Usually not about the work. It might be something else or something random. Remember that, make note of that and take that with you. And when you do see them again, you've got that point of reference. You know, how is your cat, by the way? You know, like it shows that you're interested in them as a human being. I think there's this, you can tell when somebody's in um, by my work mode and there's sort of a, a bit of a, you know, it, that's not the moment. Pick your moments, you know, taking a portfolio of you to parry photo and going up to somebody with it under your arm in their booth when they've just spent 30 grand on that booth and they've got to make that back in five days that's not the time to tell them that you're an artist. Unless you're buying, <laughs> go. It's not the time. You might see them at a party, have a chat, get to know them as a human being. Then maybe later down the line, I think everyone's in a bit of a rush because it's that comparison thing. Oh, well, they're 30 and they've done this. Well, the odds are their journey there might not have been as difficult because they had an in. Or that assumption that because somebody is doing a certain job that they don't have anything, so well, I should be doing that. I have it all the time. I wish I could do just that, but it's not been available to me. So I've had to find ways to do things differently. And yes, privilege is always going to play a part, always. But decent human beings, pick your people well. You know, those who treat you well, hang on to them. And those who don't, let them do their thing, learn the lesson and move on. Fabulous way to end this. I love <laughs> Let it. them go. <laughs> Let them free. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to chat. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been, um, yeah, it's flown. It was really cool. Before you go, we would like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, or anyone with an interest in the arts and creative industries. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community both today and in the future is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.